1: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Good morning, Michael Sher, the New York Times. How cold is it this morning?
2: It's like 22 degrees, Hugh. You, you should just come. It's bracing and and clear and fresh and uh, and actually, I'd rather be where you are. So I was
1: overlooking the Pacific last night having a hamburger with some old friends in the Fetching, Mrs. Hewitt, thinking I'm sorry for poor Michael. Michael, uh, <laughs> give me uh, an odds. What percentage chances there of the filibuster being broken this week or next by Chuck Schumer?
2: I mean, look, uh, I, you know, in this business, you never say never because the minute that you do, uh, you'll, you'll be proven wrong. Uh, but But all of our reporting suggests that it is. Um, highly unlikely, uh, bordering on on near impossible to think that uh, you know that, that that this is actually going to happen. The, the people who President Biden would need, uh, meaning all fifty Democrats, um, don't seem to be there. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, uh, a few others have 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 made it clear they're not comfortable doing this, and so unless you know, unless the speech has the kind of effect that uh, uh, it's sort of hard to imagine. I, I, I think this is this is more of a kind of demonstration of frustration uh, than it is a real uh, legislative effort.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I read your story this morning. Biden's longtime defense of Senate rules withers under partisan rancor. I also played for the audience, Joe Manchin, in the Senate Halls yesterday, cut number 24. The
0: filibuster is what we have, our rules. We need some good rule changes to make the place work better, but to get rid of the filibuster doesn't make it work better. Do you get any pressure from your constituents back home on that issue? Well, no, I mean, what they know about the filibuster is basically what Bob Byrd has educated people on over the years, and uh, the filibuster is what makes the Senate hopefully work when it's supposed to work. We need some good rules changes, and we can do that together. But you change your rules with two-thirds of the people that are present. So it's Democrats and Republicans changing the rules to make the place work better. Getting rid of the filibuster does not make it work better.
1: Michael Scheer, he has been saying this for a year. On December 19th, he told Brett Bear, I'm not changing the filibuster. Yesterday, he said, I'm not changing the filibuster. That means the filibuster is not going to change, right?
2: Yes, I think that's right. I will say I had a conversation with a senior white house person last late last week um who also noted though that that you know senator manchin and if he gives five interviews uh in a day you could come come away with you know the impression that he said sort of five slightly different things um and if you if you parse his words carefully which i think the white house is, is want to do um you know he, he he speaks in particular phrases like i'm not getting rid of the filibuster and and so i think the the what the White House is pinning their hope on, although I think it's faint hope, is that perhaps there's a way to construct something that allows them to get past the 60-vote threshold on this one issue while not, quote, getting rid of the filibuster, right? Is there a way to kind of modify the the way the filibuster works in this one one case, in this one issue? Um, You know, I, I suspect that Joe Manchin will think that that's you know, that's just um, um, playing games. Um, uh, But again, like that would be if there is a faint hope uh, for the for the advocates of voting rights uh, legislation like like President Biden wants. I think that's it, is that there there might be some way to kind of tinker with the rules in ways that don't necessarily directly violate that pledge that that you just played. Well,
1: you know, he doesn't want to upset his left-wing colleagues anymore. But he has been, he does say it 10 different ways. He says no 10 different ways. Yeah. And he said, you know, if you carve out, you end up eating the turkey. He told Brett just a, a straight up no. Yesterday, he said, take 66 votes to change the Senate rules. What, you know, it, it is so perfectly obvious. I think some ill reporters get paid a bonus, like Jadavian Clowney gets paid a bonus by the Browns for every extra sack above nine. Or eight, he got two, a quarter million dollars. I think Manu gets paid extra by Jeff Zucker every time he asks Joe Manchin about the filibuster because it's all the, it's the only hope they've got because this is not a good bill. Now, let's go to the bill. I just did something unusual for radio, Michael. I played all of a Senate floor speech. Mitt Romney's seven-and-a-half-minute floor speech, which is very unusual for radio. It yeah. never happens in television. Why? Yeah, because I- it's very hard to make that man that angry. But when you call him Bull Connor... which is that exactly what the president did. He walked with his father in civil rights marches in the early 60s. I wrote a bio of him. Republicans are not Bull Connor. They do not like this bill because it nationalizes elections and it takes away the rights of the state to control their own time, place, and manner of voting. And so I'm not Bull Connor, and I don't think he made up any ground yesterday. I think he went backwards yesterday in Atlanta.
2: Well, I, I mean, I think, look, I, I, I think there, first of all, I watched Mitt Romney, Romney's speech as well. I thought the entire thing, I thought it was it, it was um, exactly as you described it, a kind of rare moment where, you know, um, and I covered Mitt Romney for, for years in, in the various campaigns that he ran. I mean, it, he, he does have a pretty temperate um, or, or a pretty uh, even keeled temperament. And, uh, and so he, you could tell that his dander was up. I, you know, and I do think that, um, you know, in terms of the of the legislature, you got to sort of you've you got to sort of separate the different things that Biden was trying to do and who he was trying to talk to with the speech. I mean, obviously, he was trying to talk to Manchin and the holdouts uh, on the filibuster, but he obviously Biden Biden, um, uh, you know, he just reached a breaking point, I think, it, you know, and he was sort of. Uh, the, the the level of uh, kind of frustration and anger that was evident in that speech, um, you know, led him to do what you say he did plainly. He, you know, essentially called all the Republicans who opposed the legislation racist, um, which, uh, as you say, I would agree on that part. Like, I don't know, you know, how that achieves a whole lot in terms of uh, in terms of his stated goal of wanting to bring the country together.
1: It does. I mean, I I was I, I wrote a friend this morning. My parents used to take us to their hometown of Ashtabula to the famous house with the secret cellar that was the last stop on the Underground Railroad. Northern Republicans broke the filibuster against the Civil Rights Act. Northern Republicans beat Southern Democrats to pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And Joe Biden knows better. And that was one of the most divisive speeches. I've, I turned it off after the Bull Connor-George Wallace stuff. I wanted to watch it live. Thought he might try and reach across. The, I'll try and move Mark Kelly. Because the people behind this, Mark Kelly and, and uh, Maggie Hassan, don't want to vote on this. The, that, the filibuster is popular in Arizona and New Hampshire, which are states' rights places. They do not want to be run by Washington, D.C. Let's go to Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci was on this show for... Three, four, five times—I can't quite remember. Everything was fine until I finally told him, "Look, you got, you've run out of gas." I, I have to tell you, CDC has lost my confidence. He won't come on now. Uh, he won't engage with his critics. And to yell at Rand Paul about inciting violence when Rand Paul was on that softball field, Mark uh, uh, Michael, uh, yes. he, he, he was attacked by his neighbor. That was so over the top. We've got grumpy old men running the country and I'm 65 years old. So for me to say grumpy old men, that's not so far away from me, you know, to be a grumpy old man. But I just can't believe we've got Dr. Fauci and Joe Biden running things and they're yelling at us.
2: Well, so there's a lot there. I mean, just to to, to focus on the on the um, uh, on the Rand Paul exchange with Fauci. I mean, you know, my takeaway was and it's it's in some ways not unlike the you know, the, the takeaways that we've been talking about for, for Romney and, uh, and Biden is that, you know, people are reaching a breaking point. Um, you know, Fauci, again, not to take his side, but Fauci, I think, had, had his view of it, it seems, is that he'd been, you know, uh, um, sort of operating under this withering, withering, withering criticism from Rand Paul, um, you know, and, and reached his breaking point. Now, was it wise to call... Uh, you know, a U.S. senator, a moron. He called, uh, you know, Dr. Marshall a moron, or or was it wise to sort of um, uh, lash out at Rand Paul that way? I, you know, I suspect that a, a, you know, a media training person would 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 probably advise a a witness in a Senate hearing not to do that. Um, but I, but I do. It, it, I don't know about you, uh, Hugh, but it feels like we're all, you know, starting our third year in the pandemic. Uh, We're all uh, reaching a kind of point where we just sort of uh, don't have the restraints um, uh, and the patience that maybe we all did before.
1: Well, I'll tell you, Michael, my grandchildren's my daughter is had it with the state of Virginia and their back and forth on rules. I think moms across the United States have had it. The Chicago teachers unions have had it. Omicron is everywhere, and it—you know—eight hundred police officers are down in LA, but they'll be back in a week and a half. Omicron just is not what Delta is, and common sense tells us, "Hey, relax and, and be smart, but don't don't overreact." I want to give you the last word.
2: Well, I think that's wise advice, and uh, you know, I think the especially being careful. Uh, but um, having covered this for two years, let's not overreact. I agree.
1: But and you know, it could get bad again. and If it gets bad again. And Dr. Fauci is in charge of giving advice. It's not going to work. That's the danger, is that the lead guy is now a polarizing figure where he wasn't two years ago. Michael Scheer, follow him at ScheerM on Twitter. Good piece in the New York Times this morning. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.
3: This is Carol Platt-Lebow for townhall.com. The Supreme Court has started the year with some cases to watch. Justices heard arguments about whether the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, may impose Joe Biden's vaccine mandate on large employers. OSHA is charged with setting health and safety standards for industries, including hospitals and construction. The Supreme Court must decide if an agency that usually makes technical determinations, for example, that the permissible exposure limit for ammonia is 50 parts per million over an eight hour day, is also empowered to enforce a sweeping vaccine mandate. But it's likewise time to look at the outsized power agencies like OSHA have amassed. They appear nowhere in the Constitution, yet they're effectively a fourth branch of government that contain all the powers of the other three. And too often, they abuse these powers. Yet, as we've seen with Dr. Fauci, those who control agencies are shielded from accountability. In a representative democracy like ours, that's a problem. One we should start addressing now. I'm Carol platt Liebau.
0: The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.